0: Welcome back, listeners. On this episode, I spoke to sound supervisor Scott Gershon, re-recording mixer Frank Montano, and re-recording mixer John Taylor about Guillermo del Toro's *Pinocchio*. Gershon is an Emmy nominee, a BAFTA nominee, and a seven-time MPSE award winner. Montano is a nine-time Oscar nominee, a four-time BAFTA nominee and a three-time CAS award winner. Taylor is a four-time Oscar nominee, an Emmy nominee, a four-time BAFTA nominee, and a two-time CAS award winner. I really just have to start out by congratulating you guys um, because I mean, one, Scott, you with um, the MPSE nominee, um, or nomination, and then John and Frank with uh, the cast nomination. That's fantastic. And then, I mean, not even, there's even more with the BAFTA long list than the Oscar shortlist. So it's just, you guys are in such an incredible time. Um, and I really just want to start out by asking how does, how are you taking all this in? It's just, it's, I mean, for such a special movie too, to, uh, and especially, and I know, the animation thing is a is a hot hotly contended is it film is it not I it is obviously very much um cinema um but I just I have to ask um how how are you guys taking all this
1: in you know look I'll say this is that you know, we've all done a number of films in our careers and and you know and they it's kind of giving like birth to kids they all become kind of a kids you you do your best and they go out into the world and Whatever happens, happens. I will say for me that Pinocchio to me feels like a classic because it reaches a larger audience—not just kids, but adults. You can watch it several times and see different parts of the movie that you may not have noticed meanings on maybe the first playthrough. Um, the craftsmanship is off the charts, and for me, I know my grand my my son. We'll play for his grandkids, and mm-hmm. I go. That's what grandpa did, mm-hmm. or great grandpa, or great 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 grandpa. It has that ability to, like I know, hundred one Dalmatians and Cinder all the, the the classics that we were brought up on, and uh, and it's just I think that this has that potential to be a classic, and yeah. um, and it'll outlive us. Yeah. And that's sort of the biggest joy. I mean, it's nice to be acknowledged by your peers, but I think really for me, what's nice is that it'll it'll last the test of time. We think, and that people will enjoy it for generations to come. And to have been part of that, that's the takeaway for me. Mm. I mean, being you know,
2: okay. being being recognized by your peer group. For all the hard work by many many people that go unnoticed, um, is uh, humbling, uh, without a doubt. Win win, lose or draw, it's it's always humbling and and uh, very appreciative. Um, the film film is speaks for itself. It's fantastic. It's interesting because a lot of people have um, when we talk about when it's been spoken about, uh, say all the detail. There's all this detail in it. And, uh, you know, we always try no matter if it's live action or or animation is to get the detail and dynamics. But in this case, you're dealing with production noise uh, sounds um, that don't really belong in some moments. Uh, So it's kind of nice to be able to get all that delicate detail in, in the in the work. And that's been recognized by by a lot of the peers. But so it's definitely humbling and gratifying to be recognized before that.
3: Yeah, it's um, definitely for everybody involved, because it, is, it does take a village. And as we know, and I, I say that Christy and Peter, who were the scoring mixers, did such an amazing job um, that, you know, when it by the time it gets to my fingers, it's already great. It's like, sounds phenomenal. What can I do to help this, you know, to help it better, help it be better, even, you know, working in the film, but it takes so many different people and the ADR being recorded all over the place, all sorts of different times over the course of three years, um, everybody had done such a great job, you know, so it really is. I, I, I think this nomination, um, it's exciting in many ways, but I think the collaboration of the whole team is what's most exciting to me, you know, with Scott's whole team um, and all the different mixers Foley and um, music and uh you know everybody else involved, I think it's fantastic.
0: Mm. yeah no i i I wish we had enough time to talk about Kate Blanchett um, playing the monkey, but I will forego that question uh, for
1: for another a great time. job, by the way.
0: She did a fantastic job. I, I was so I, I loved her noise. And I her- was there
1: when she recorded it. And I just gotta tell you, everybody was laughing. She was laughing. She thought this was so goofy. But I've worked with Kate a number of times, and I'll just say that um, she's the ultimate professional. Hmm. She goes, Oh, we're doing monkeys out. Okay, she listens to what she did. Okay. All right. Now let me let me update it. Let me do some things to it. And she she's she totally gets it. She's having fun with it. She knows it's totally ridiculous because Kate Blanchett's doing a monkey, but I will say professionally, she figures out what she what's best, and she she just zeroes in on it, and it's amazing to watch her work.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And so I I really want to start out with um, sort of the, uh, Guillermo del Toro and what is it about him that is just so special and and what he um, has been able to to bring back to life
1: you know I work with Guillermo now for almost 30 years Guillermo loves filmmaking he loves telling stories he likes to tell stories in his own style and his own way he loves the crafts that go into it visual makeup costumes He just loves it all. Visual effects. He loves sound. He has always allowed us to, to really create rich, interesting soundtracks. He doesn't kind of put the brakes on. He kind of go for it, do what you think. And then he's kind of helped shape it a little bit. And I think that he's just, I think he's a great storyteller and he is an amazing visual storyteller. Every show he's ever done, it's his own style. And he's not trying to do anybody else's style but his mm. and his own perception of how a story should be told. And uh, you know, I think it that's what makes him one of the great filmmakers of our day.
2: Mm. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> <laughs>
3: John, anything you want to add? No, uh, the one thing that is, I don't want to say different. Um, Of course, every director is different. I mean, we're lucky to work with some incredibly amazing
0: directors.
3: (laughs) Guillermo is very, very good at making a decision and, you know, committing to that decision, uh, which is rare sometimes, you know, where people like to go around and around and around. Guillermo is very good at paying attention, listening and say, boom, I don't like that. That's bad. Boom, you know he's very. In you try to find his rhythms. Um, the one thing he is for sure is just his demeanor is always linear. You know, it's not all over the place. So he's super. In one way, he's very easy, but another way, he is very demanding. He knows what he wants. He wants something unique, something different. You have to find it sometimes, but he's so good at leading you in the right direction, um, and I think that makes a big difference in filmmaking.
1: And, and I'll say that a lot of times, most films we do like three playbacks at the end. And sometimes to play it back is to fix it, which is always a, a saying. But I find with him, he doesn't get insecure at the end. He right. doesn't go, oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. He doesn't second guess himself. He'll look at it. And I've noticed on, on a number of films we've worked on, the third time playing it, most people go, you know what? It's fine. I just want to hear it. And then we'll move on. And I find sometimes he will keep working until it's perfect. And he'll look at a scene and he'll go like, you know what, that scene's not playing right now. They the whole arc because when we mix, we mix in small sections. But when he plays the whole film through, he's always working the just to just to to put the last little detail in. But never through insecurity. It's always just to make it better.
0: Mm. And so, to get into the process a bit, um I'd love to hear just a bit about each of your sort of stories sort of woven through um this timeline of creating this picture um and just and just where you all sort of fit in. I know it's all been at sort of various points pre covid post covid i mean, I would just i would love to I would love to talk about that and and where everyone just fit in uh, fit in to the timeline
1: so um. When I first started working with him, I just wanted to touch base with him. And uh, um, he asked me what I was working on so far, and I said, "I don't start to January." And he said, "No, you start next week." And that was in August. <laughs> so, um at that point, he wanted me to experiment, work with storyboards, and start getting uh, design concepts done. And um he was finishing his other film and go through award season. um a nightmare alley but yeah so i started early on collecting sounds experimenting trying to figure out what worked what didn't and then as it's a very slow process stop motion yeah so you know they'll do a couple seconds a day which is why they had 60 teams for a thousand days mm. so i would be getting shots every two weeks not scenes but shots so i'd look at say call it scene one I get two shots the next week or two weeks. I get two shots, three shots, even though it's 50 shots long, they were shot by shot and it wasn't start at the beginning to work to the end because that's 60 teams doing different scenes, I get one shot from this scene, two shots from that scene. And it was interesting. And I'd start gluing things together to see, does it work? Does it not work? And then, you know, they were working and we were all working remotely so we set up ways to communicate uh, remotely. So I was sending five one little mixes over to Oregon and then stereo mixes to Guillermo at his house and um, putting together little scenes of what they could sound like and kind of experimenting, iterating and what about this and what about that? And did that for probably eight months, six to eight months. Mm. And then I brought my crew on because I was the only one on. I brought my crew on about three to four months before the mix. And then we just started saying, okay, now we've got 80% of the movie done. And we didn't get the final shots until we were actually inside the mix. Mm. And there were no shots coming on. So it, you know, it's just a, pro- it's a process. And sometimes you look at it and you go, wow, that was a great idea. But now that I'm hearing music and now that I'm seeing the full shot, we need to change some things because – it's just playing differently than we thought it would.
3: Hmm. good, John. <laughs> you know and I think that's uh, it's interesting because um talking about that as far as designing the sound, not hearing the music till the very end. Music doesn't really a lot of times doesn't happen to the very end. And this film, like many went through many iterations. And I'm sure Scott only got pieces of this and pieces of that of the music to listen to maybe just a couple months before. Um, But, you know, talking from the music side where Alexander Desplat has sort of the way he arranges sometimes makes the music flexible not just up and down, but within the tracks themselves, you know, trading off from an accordion to strings or whatever helps tell the story and keep it nice and clean with the sound. And Scott does the same way. that gives Frankie the ability to have different sounds that are accomplishing a similar thing to get it to work, you know, better with the score. So, I mean, there's so many... Um, it's It's interesting that you get pictures so late, but yet you're still so flexible, Scott. You know what I mean? That's the part that I really just really appreciate of the sound itself and also with the way Desplat does his score.
1: And also say that with with both uh, John and Frankie, you, I, I mean, I've worked with both both these guys for decades. And Frankie and I've been in the tent uh, the trenches together. And on the design side, We almost become sort of one person because he knows my style. I sort of know his style so we can anticipate uh, a lot of our moves and, and how it should be put together. So I can only take it so far because like John said, I actually didn't hear the music until I got to the stage. Mm -hmm. I heard really, really early demos, which in retrospect were nothing like what it sounded like, but it kind of got a flavor, but I'd say for eight months, I heard very Spielbergy, yeah. big John Williamsy kind of scores, which did lead me in a direction. And Guillermo said, look, during the playbacks, no music because you're, you're going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just somebody had picked music that they thought played well for the scene. And then in retrospect, yeah, it was like totally in a different direction. So it made me go on a direction until Guillermo said, get rid of all that you know just do the sound and boy when you're naked it's just sound and dialogue <laughs> you're like oh my god I, there's nowhere to hide you know there's no <laughs> to, you know you're much more exposed and and they spent a lot of time with these guys they were super busy but i really like come see the film let me show you the tracks i went over there early to see the the new amazing dubbing stage they have and and just bring them into how can i help these guys with our tracks to, to you know, make their jobs easier and, and make the product better because
2: mm-hmm. he, he's, he's met me, so it has to be simple. <laughs> 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 uh, it, it, it's, it's great. I mean it's, it's such a, a, a colorful palette, and uh, you know the audio focus is, is most interesting and dynamics all, all this you know normal description of audio but uh, it's really true in this case because it was just blank canvas in, in a way because of the animation so it, it allowed us a lot of lead way we, we start the movie manoral mono and it opens up and, and Guillermo was very interested in, in kind of achieving that keeping it more towards the puppetry instead of the cinematic part of it and then as the movie goes on it opens up acoustically so sound I mean sonically so we we open up the array surround subharmonic, a lot more movement and stuff as the movie goes on and it just builds naturally you, you sometimes don't even notice it um so it was a lot of fun just to kind of sculpt it in, in that way and then all the other little tidbits that come about uh in our process new stuff this stuff so Scott and crew uh you know Chris and, and Andrew and 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 Scoots me yeah all these folks and they're you know developing sounds and bringing them in and requests and all that stuff and and you know just stitching it all together it was a really it uh, was a pleasure Guillermo is fantastic to work with and you know it's one of those filmmakers where you actually learn stuff even after all these years you learn you know cinematic storytelling sonically uh it's really interesting if you're open to it you, you get to learn from from great craftsmen and, and filmmakers like that
1: and i'll just add if i just Jump in real quick with Frankie when he was saying, is he's kind of making light of it, but it's huge in that I'm used to sound design having design and concept. A lot of times people will mix a film in a way that is, I thought we did differently in the fact that there was an evolutionary design to the mix from the puppet show, because not only is it a puppet show starting, but it's the evolution of Pinocchio. So Mm. Pinocchio starts from innocence and goes into complexity as society, it tries to imprint their way of doing things on the Pinocchio, only at the end, with Pinocchio still being the only person, it's a circle of life. And what I loved about the mix was they were mimicking the exact same thing from a stylistic mix standpoint, which I just thought was amazing. Mm.
3: You know, along with that, you know, because uh, Guillermo was such a strong presence and powerful presence, and the other presence in the room was uh, Mark Gustafson, who's the um, co-director. And it was, it was fantastic that everything or every feeling that Guillermo had, you know, he would pass it by Mark. And Guillermo sometimes is very, he wants to be... Um, Foreboding, you know, he really wants it to come at you at times. And every once in a while, Mark would speak up and say, "You know, that might be just a little too much right there. I think we're going after it too much." So the the dynamic of both directors, um, I do really believe, helped the overall sound of the film, Uh, especially towards the end when we got into Dogfish. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a couple moments in there where uh, Mark would just be like, "Yeah, just hold hold back just a little bit right there, or this or that," you know. And I thought it worked really well. And talking about the, you know, music working with the effects, um, it's the music's just fantastic. It's so good all the way through, but never was there a time where it was like, oh, music's going to carry it. Never, ever, ever. The, the sound was always a part of every single moment of it. So, I mean, Scott and his team and Frankie, they really had a, a lot, you know, a lot to deal with, a lot of really critical choices to be made to make sure that it, that everybody plays in the sandbox together. Well, you know,
1: mm. and I'll say even with Mark, um, you know, I, I was pretty much part of most of the ADR sessions and Mark was a massive component uh, on, on working with the actors. So was Guillermo. Um, but very, very active and great sense of script, great sense of story. And they were truly partnering up on the ADR stages. And, um, it was fun to watch, you know, and uh they were they were true collaborators in that way. And also then I got a chance to go to Oregon where they were shooting it <laughs> and that was a treat for me. I was like in Disneyland. First of all, there were so many people they 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 i I was lucky enough that on the day they brought on a um a remote control uh camera uh um drone Hi, Johnny. 600 people were all outside, took a group picture. Mm. and uh, It was, it's so many people, but you go in there and what was blowing me away. I'd seen a bunch of it before. So I'd already been on it six, seven, eight months. And then I'm seeing the figures are only like this big. Yeah. Really small. And I'm looking at the fabric and I'm like, how? first of all, how'd you make the clothes that small? And then they just wore it down and, and I would go in and it was these people painting them because it, it was very strange in that they opened up a little closet and then there were probably 10 Pinocchios, 15 Volpes, all the characters were multiples of because each group was using them. Mm. And that's where they would store them when they weren't using them. And that was like, no, you can't, these are real people. You can't put them in a closet. Um, <laughs> so that was very strange, but watching how they made the puppets, uh, I, I was a kid in a candy store. I just wanted to hang out there the whole time.
0: Yeah, no, I, I can, I can understand that. I mean, when I saw the first Pinocchio and Guillermo was holding it at, I think it was the BFI film festival. Yeah. I was just like, how do I get one? Where can I get one? And so, yeah, no, it's, it's incredible craftsmanship that um, I mean, once again, all around, but um,
1: the artistry is is so inspiring. And I think, you know, that's why I think a lot of us got our inspiration. Seeing the level of detail and the artistry that went into this. How could you not? I mean, the visuals were so detailed. How can audio not be as detailed as what we saw visually? Mm. And the and, uh, uh, attention to detail was just, I don't know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the artistry that went into it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
3: And, and the artistry that Scott put into it also, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, just because I early on, we're talking about the timeline of, of being involved, but early on, Scott came to my house with a boatload of really expensive wood that he got from PRS, I guess, and wanted to cut them down in, into different pieces to, to experience different sounds. And um, I, man, it was fun. He, I I don't even know if he knew if I was there or not, because he was so into his own little world. It was really, it was uh, very exciting. And that was before I saw even a frame
1: um, of the film. Yeah. You know, I was trying to find different woods to use and I tried vintage puppets and they, they had a clacky hardness that just, uh, it didn't work. Um, I tried it because, you know, Guillermo and I were talking, let's, try puppets i put a scene together and he goes "Yeah, it's not gonna work and we're both like yeah it's just too it's too clacky it's like only bowling pins and clacking them together um and then uh, i had this weird idea about i'm a guitar player and uh pierce i love pierce guitars so i reached out to them and said i have a crazy idea when you guys are making guitars do you have any scraps and they're not just normal wood they're exotic woods Uh, brazilian rosewoods and and mahogany and i mean all these great sounds and they're tonal um so they sent me 50 pounds of wood (laughs) and i said okay they're really tonal and and john's got this great little setup so i went to his place and we were literally hitting them, and listening like wait a minute that's too tonal and as we made them smaller it changed the pitch so we started making different kinds of wood at different pitches that mm. we thought would work out. And uh, it was amazing. And, and it's, you know, I got a bag full of tonal wood.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and just in our final few minutes, I mean, what do you guys ultimately each take away from this project?
2: Um, it's, it's a once in a lifetime kind of thing. I mean, it's it's so... Incredibly cool, it checks all the boxes. The cool factor, it's amazing. Um, it'll live forever, and I'm just really uh proud to be part of it.
0: Yeah,
3: you know, for me, Frankie, uh, Frankie and I haven't done a ton of animation. Um, at least I don't, I don't think you have Frankie, right? Just a few things of animation, uh,
2: okay. yeah, just a handful, yeah.
3: So for me, this was only my second animation feature, animated feature, not that I, and animation is really not the right word for this either. It's hard for me to say that because (laughs) it is live. It is, you know, it is live and you can tell that it's, it's live. But I mean, after a, a second of watching the film, you're not sure what you're seeing really. A minute later, it's just live action. You just believe it, that those people are real. There's nothing you know, strange. It's all like you're, at the, you're watching a film. It's so bizarre, but I love not. You can actually, from a mixing standpoint, a dialogue mixing standpoint, you don't have not worrying about um, the noise so much. Now, that's not always the case. Some ADR is recorded in noisy environments. Um, I don't believe I had any of that issue on this film whatsoever. Um, All of the ADR was recorded very well. Sometimes it was a little bit different because of different places, but not having to fight the battle of production sound really let me focus on other things, Um, especially on, you know, head turns and perspectives and, you know, really trying to make those tight and consistent, you know? So there was, so you never had to think about the dialogue. It just happened, you understood it. It was clear, you believed what it was doing. So you never you never have to think about it as a viewer, which is always the goal. And sometimes that sound can get in the way. So it was a real pleasure starting off in a, in a place, like I said earlier, where the music is already just absolutely perfect and beautiful. And the dialogue is really, it's already good. You know, we got to make a bit of all the sounds, everything's just so impressive, you know, that the goal is okay. Now let's get it, the rest, let's get it to the finish line, you know, to knock it out. So um, it was just such a pleasure in dealing with everybody's, you know, so professional. And again, the collaboration, everybody bringing their, their A game. Um, it was, um, it was a lot of fun for sure.
1: I, I, you know, I'd worked, with, like I said, with Guillermo for a while. And most of the shows I've always done were the big, loud, over-the-top, Hellboy 2 and Pacific Rim and Blade 2. And it was all, like, rock the room stuff. And I'd always said to him, I said, I want to do one of your quiet pieces. Uh, one of my favorite um, shows he did was early on was Devil's Backbone.
3: Mm. I just
1: loved it for the minimalism and all that. And I said, one day, I would love an opportunity to do one of your quieter shows. So when I got this chance, it was great because now think of it as like, if I was a heavy metal guitar player, now I get to play minimalistic jazz and it was so fresh. And it, it, it uh, I always love doing shows that it's not like I've done a ton of them. I mean, I've done a bunch of animation, but every show wants its own unique voice. So you go into it with no pre preconceptions of what you want it to be you're going to do what it wants you to be. Mm. So when you start seeing the show and it says, this is what we, what the show's about and how it's unique and different, then you take all your talents and your crafts and be able to apply it to this unique story that's not like any other story out there. Mm. And what I do love about stop motion or animation or something like this, which John was talking about is when you do production, there's always a certain masking because you always have to hear dialogue. And in this case, the dialogue was clean. So now you can hear music. It's a lot of times you have to bring music and effects back just to hear the dialogue because there's so much noise in that dialogue. And, and the clarity that we were able to bring to the show because everything was clean. Now all of a sudden you make it articulate. Everything has its own voice. We were able to experiment not only tonally, but spatially. Um, it was great. And, and again, just having the honor to be able to work on a show like this, that's that's a joy. I mean, more mm-hmm. than anything, you know, I think, and also we're like a band. And that's mm. good. I think I think of everything as music. But it <laughs> is you know, when you're in a band and everybody's anticipating each, we're not falling on each other, we're playing together and you're doing this. Song, oh, I like that, and this is inspiring me and this is inspiring you. And we're all kind of feeding off each other's energies. That's that. And working with Guillermo and Mark and all the great people and the crews we have. uh, And also Dan O'Connell, we did Foley with just off the charts. Amazing. Um, That's that's the joy. Mm. And you were saying earlier on, you know, about the awards is that we get to share with each other and be proud and happy for each other.
0: Thank you all for listening. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jackson Vickery. Graphics were done by Dylan Michael. And the opening and closing theme were done by Sterling Gavinsky.